Well, welcome back to Answering Religious Error as we continue our studies in the live Bible Q&A portion of our week every Wednesday at 12 noon Eastern time. So wherever you might be, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening. We thank you for tuning in to the program today, and we look forward to receiving your questions, which many of you have already uh, sent us questions through questions at answeringreligiousera.com. That's the best way to reach us. Uh, some will put some questions in as we're doing the show live in the chats. If you do that, you need to go to our Facebook page, uh, which is uh, facebook.com or uh, even the YouTube channel. Uh, Facebook will probably be the preferable way. Uh, you can put more information on there. But uh, we'll try to take those as they come. And uh, we have kind of a backlog that we've been working on for a few weeks. So if we haven't gotten to your question in a while, just hang in there. Uh, we will get to it uh, eventually. Just a quick reminder here that you can uh, be with us every Tuesday at noon Eastern time uh, for a series called Why I Believe. Yesterday we talked about why I believe that Christians should be vocal. And of course, that's in the spread of God's word. And so it was a good study. I uh, had a good time with the men that are there, some of which are here with us today. But you can also listen to the Daily Answer podcast beginning as early as 5 a.m. So start your day Monday through Friday with Mark Dunnigan as he shares with you about 15, 20 minutes of uh, perspectives of, of godliness and life. And uh, he's uh, you know experienced so many things, especially with his recent travels in the past couple of years. And I always really enjoy uh, the, the stories that he has to share. So start your day with the Daily Answer podcast. And if you're a podcast listener, then you know you can go to Answer Religious Error and listen to us on a podcast uh, shortly after the live programs uh, uh, drop. You can find them in a podcast format. So go there and uh, listen to the to a uh, uh, podcast. If you're a podcaster, you know what I'm talking about. So I won't bore you with all the details. Uh, we want to remind you, though, that you can begin your week every Monday night with Bob uh, Myhan as he uh, brings to us Bob's Bible Basics. He's going through a study of angels and demons right now. And I just love his thematic studies, the topical studies he's had each week. So join Bob for that study. We'll talk about some more things toward the end of the program today. But let's go ahead and introduce the men that will be answering your questions today. I'm Chris Kramer. We have with us Mark Dunnigan, Nick Greenman, Terry Benton, and Brian Haynes. Again, it's good to be with you guys today. Looking forward to picking your brain, sharing your wisdom today. Um, before we begin, let's bow our heads in prayer and um, just spin the random wheel here. And I think it's going to land on Brian Haynes today. Would you join me in prayer? Most holy God and Father, we are so very, very grateful because we are the recipients of 10,000 blessings poured upon us, Father. We're grateful to have a few minutes of time in the middle of our week that we can uh, dive into your word. We're grateful for those who have an interest in such things, Father, those who desire to know more, Father. We're grateful that uh, we've been given this medium and the technology that allows us to uh, come together in the way we have. And Father, we pray that in all things we accurately handle your word so that we might demonstrate that uh, we are workmen who uh, need not be ashamed. Father, thank you for this opportunity. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Mm, let's see. We're going to do some click the buttons here and get ready for a segment we like to call Meantime. Our meme today uh, represents uh, some of what we see going on in society today. And 
I have to say that, um, you know, I can relate to some of this. Um, uh, the text goes like this, especially for podcast listeners. Um, it talks about a gay person, which we know, um, you know, using the old terminology from the past, they've kind of stolen that. And uh, it's used for describing a homosexual, which is one of the things that we see very prominent. And of course, I believe that this would transcend all of the, you know, LGBTQ movements and so on. And um, a gay person, uh, you know, just randomly exists in a movie. And so therefore, religious people reply, see, they're, they're forcing their lifestyle on us. And then uh, the meme used to discredit that kind of thinking also shows religious people standing at the door of someone's home, uh, obviously knocking, trying to receive an answer and talk to them about religion. I, I will have to say that the meme represents probably what is known as uh, the Mormons. I think we've all experienced them coming to our doors from time to time. Uh, and um, even though I don't consider their teaching to be uh, accurate, uh, I will say, and give them some credit for their efforts in trying to spread their idea of the gospel. And so um, this meme is not to be representative of Mormonism or any other kind of group. I think it's just showing religious people in a random way. And this is who the, the picture was chosen. So again, a gay person exists in the movie. Religious people say they're forcing their lifestyle on us. And then we turn around and show up on their doorsteps. How do we answer this and what is our, I'll just say, defense? Well, I would say, uh, remember Jesus when he talked about uh, people in darkness and that they hate the light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to be exposed. Uh, the gay, gay person is obviously in the dark as far as God is concerned, and he poured out his wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah made an example forever that that is a lifestyle that that God does not like. God is against that. Uh, and so the light that Jesus Christ brings, he's the light of the world. And when you talk about the morals and the standards of Jesus Christ, then those who do not like those standards are going to hate Jesus. And consequently, if we love Jesus and present Jesus morals and talk about the, the word of God, then we, uh, in their eyes, are, are hateful people. We're, we're in the dark. And so this is a battle for the minds. Is Jesus really the Christ, the son of the living God? Does he actually represent true light or is he just another person equal to the gay person? that is in the darkness too. And the answer of course, is that the proof is in the pudding, that Jesus presents great light and he brings great light out of the darkness. Just like in uh, Genesis one, you also see in second Corinthians chapter four, that the light of the gospel has shone in our hearts. And therefore we have to try to bring other people into the light. So yeah, our, we're, we're trying to spread the light of the gospel to other people to try to bring about a better life for them and a great eternity for them. And so we have a, we have a, a purpose uh, that uh, begins with light. On the other hand, the person that does not believe in Jesus 
he's in the dark and he remains in the dark until we can bring light to them. Now, the gay person in this meme is trying to pretend that he has his own light and he has the right to present his lifestyle to everyone, just as religious people have the right to present their ideas to everyone. And so we shouldn't complain when they do what we do. And that is try to try to get their message across to other people. So that's the idea. This is a battle that will always go on. And, you know, that's the way they look at it. They look at they're doing the same thing the church does, except they come at it with a different, different intention. And so they would claim we have the same right as they do. And Jesus would say, no, there are some people who just hate the light and they want to try their best to discredit the light. And that's their mission in life is to try to bring darkness to other people. But that just reinforces Ephesians chapter six says we're in a battle for the minds. We wrestle against principalities and powers in the darkness of this age. We have a battle of light and darkness. And that's the kind of thing that you're going to see in this battle is that we got to know, are we in the light or are we on the side of darkness? And each side has got to answer that question. We're in this, we're, we're informed of the light of Jesus Christ. And therefore we would try to uh, inform people that, no, you can't just make up light. You can't just pretend that you're in the light, that you've got to have a strong, solid basis. And the LGBTQ, whatever, all the initials that go with that, uh, all that is, is just people trying to justify the darkness of their soul. They can't reproduce themselves uh, as God intended, male and female, and they produce children. Gay people can't produce children, so they have a desire to recruit as many, and they'll use the education system to try to, um, to present their viewpoint and try to recruit people. And we're in the, uh, the Lord's, Lord's army, and we're trying to fight against the darkness of this world. And that's just one of the forms of darkness that we, we face. Uh, it's not the only form, but it is, it is coming from the dark, and we have to wrestle. And our weapons are not carnal. They're mighty in God, though. And they bring down strongholds like that. So, uh, yeah, as far as the meme is concerned, it's just an expression of the battle that we're in. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, to follow up on what Terry said, um, you know, there's there's some hypocrisy in this meme as well. Because when I go door knocking and I see on the door, no soliciting, I'm going to respect their uh, wishes not to be solicited to, and I'll go to the next door. Usually it's people who put that on there. They don't want to have the, the evangelist coming and knocking on the door, you know, and, and, uh, and so they want to keep their, their peace. And so I move on. Now, when I'm in my own home, 
And I want to be careful about the brainwashing or the indoctrination that comes through entertainment through the home, because entertainment is one of the most powerful ways to indoctrinate and to uh, to soften the the minds towards whatever philosophy that Hollywood wants to promote. Um, you know, I want to be able to control what comes into my house. Um, and so being able to use uh, filtering services such as VidAngel or uh, ClearPlay or even TV Guardian, that that is still out there. Um, I should be able to to cut that stuff out if I want to. I, I should be able to be I should be able to protect my children and what they hear and what they see and what they are exposed to. I have a right in my own home to be able to promote the ideologies I want to promote and. And if I want to remove the gay person out of a movie, that's my prerogative. Uh, I should I should be able to do that. But yet when when Hollywood is in this battle, I mean, you look at how Disney and other big uh, Hollywood production companies, they have been in a battle uh, against the idea of filtering their their material uh, as they've been having to accept uh, some but they've been able to have victories over others. And so it's, it's a battle out there. And, and so there is hypocrisy in this, that in our homes, we should be able to say yes or no to whatever we want. Uh, but um, apparently uh, what's good for the goose isn't good for the gander sometimes. You know, uh, Chris, it's interesting as I look at the meme, first of all, that both groups are condemned in scripture. That is people pushing false religion or going beyond the teaching of Christ. That's wrong. Second uh, John nine or people that say, hey, an angel showed up with another gospel, Galatians one, six to nine. But homosexuality is condemned as well. First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through 10. Interesting, the meme I think Chris admits that uh, both are evangelizing. Uh, both are trying to spread a message. I think it maybe unintentionally admits that, but that the gay person in the movie is an attempt to change your mind. One thing I would note as far as a difference there is that the Mormons or Joe Witnesses, whoever shows up on your porch, that's an opportunity for a conversation. That can go to, and a conversation is like where you listen and then I, I talk to you and you listen to me. A movie, though, you know, you can't have a conversation with a movie. The other thing is that how is the gay person portrayed in the movie? Are they portrayed honestly or is it nothing more than propaganda? Are, are people trying to sell me something here? To me, the meme is kind of dated because back in the 80s and 90s, Chris, I heard a lot of homosexuals would make the argument, well, how does my lifestyle threaten you? Uh, how does my lifestyle affect you? Well, with the arise of the transgender ideology and all of that, of where now they are, um, you know, going behind the backs of parents, they are mutilating minors, etc. Um, I can make for, for I can make fun of the Mormons, Chris, or the Joe Witnesses, or whatever people can do that, and you're not going to lose your job. Okay. In fact, society might kind of applaud you, but you do the same thing for the homosexual movement and watch out. And so it's interesting here, um, as I take a look at this now, 30 years later or so from the 80s or the 90s, um, 
man, a lot of information has come in. And Terry's right. Terry's right. I was even writing about this today is that it, it's God's wisdom of if you're going to depart from his, if you're going to depart from his plan, you're not going to be able to reproduce. And that really explains like, well, why are these drag queens going into elementary, uh, into uh, libraries with little kids? Why aren't they going to nursing homes? Why aren't they going to, if drag is art, as people claim, then why aren't they going to a more adult, so-called sophisticated audience? You know, it would be like the Rolling Stones going on tour and booking all the daycares across America. Bakes, bakes about as much sense as that. The fact that they're going into a library and want to talk to little children, that means that this is about recruitment. And Terry's right. In order to remain viable, in order to remain a force, since they can't reproduce, they have to recruit. And that's what's going on there. And so I think it's uh, everyone out there, Chris, is trying to recruit. Everyone out there has a message. Christians are not the only one trying to evangelize and convert. And so when someone says, well, I don't, I don't like you Christians trying to convert me. Well, you know what? Everyone's trying to convert you to something. Need, need to get your head out of the sand. Those are my thoughts. Excellent, excellent points. I mean, uh, it's true. Uh, we're not going to to deny that we are trying to convert people to the Lord. Um, you know, that's the godly thing to do. We're not bringing profanity. We're not bringing sexual content. We're not bringing things. Now, when you read in the Bible and you see some of those things that exist, uh, you find some very uh, depraved. Um, you know, actions by individuals, God condemns those things. He's given us this book to show us. Uh, and, and that's why I think if, if the Bible is made into, you know, a movie, kind of like the passion of the Christ, you're going to see some very intense things uh, that, you know, could say, you know, people try to show as inconsistent, but here's, here's a point that I want to make is that, and it kind of goes back to what Nick was saying as well. And especially as, a father of young children, Nick, uh, he and I talk a lot about this subject as we like entertainment. We, we like uh, we watch shows together. We go to movies together, but we are very choosy about, you know, our concern for the content of these shows. We make a choice as to the certain type of programming that we watch. And, you know, when it comes to Hollywood or whatever, there used to be a time at least where these things were car uh, compartmentalized. In other words, if you were going to, which some people do, go to a movie that represents, um, you know, the gay movements and so on, uh, you know, that was out there out front. But as, you know, Nick mentioned Disney and even some of the Nickelodeon shows that are supposed to, or at least one time or another, you thought were geared toward children. Uh, I'm just going to say it. They sneak it in and they're sneaky about it and they're being more open about it because people now have learned to research, investigate. Um, you have a choice as to what you want to see. So what these movements will tell you is, uh, well, just don't see the movie. Well, I don't, you know, and, and I won't. Uh, but when you sneak it in, how am I supposed to know the difference sometimes? And sometimes we have to do some investigating. Uh, we have to watch programming before we show it to our children these days. You can't trust anything because they want to normalize these movements as just a lifestyle that's acceptable. And it does cause a young person to question their role in these things. And they question it and their mind gets muddled by the world. Satan is sneaky. Satan is sneaky. And um, he doesn't have to come in just in your face about it. 
uh, he knows how to, you know, come in through the back door to, uh, you know, affect your life and your children and, and mess up their thoughts to where out front and open religious people are being put down. And uh, so profanity, sexual content, watch out for those things, keep them away from your children and quit listening to the world, the profane world saying, hey, it's just the way we do things the way my family's going to do things. And Did uh, Chris freeze up on you? Um, so, uh, Chris, uh, you froze up on us for just a second there, but okay. uh, I, I think you're back now. Do I need It was right at the end when you were on again. fire there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's usually the highlight that uh, yeah that, <laughs> that gets missed on. So uh, anyway, we'll see how it turns out in the recording a bit later. I'm having some back uh, uh, setbacks with some of my settings here. So let's see if we can't get this thing going. Then let's go ahead and begin with some of our questions today. We've already uh, received a good live question. We're going to start with that today, and uh, let me try to bring that up. Uh, the question centers around soul and spirit, that terminology we find in the Bible. And uh, Dan says, is man composed of body and spirit or body, soul and spirit? So how do we make the distinction between those that terminology? Who'd like to start? Yeah, I'll, I'll go. Uh, Dan, that's a great question. And um, I, I'm not sure it's an easy one to answer, but let's start off by going over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where there's an interesting statement made by the Apostle Paul. In chapter 5 and verse 23, he makes the statement, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In that passage, it does seem to indicate that there is a sense where uh, a person is comprised of a soul, a body, and a spirit. Um, perhaps the most difficult thing to understand, though, is that there's a lot of times in Scripture where the term soul and spirit are used as similes. In other words, they are used interchangeably for the same description, uh, the same thing within them. So that can be kind of uh, difficult to understand sometimes. But another passage, it gives us a sense of their distinction. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 talks about the scriptures being able to divide between the soul and the spirit. Uh, sometimes, Dan, the way I think of this is I think of the idea that being made in the image of God, God being three persons, uh, I, I sometimes consider that perhaps we might see ourselves as three persons. Um, and that God is, uh, you know, God, the son who came in the flesh, God, the father and the spirit that we too have flesh and spirit and soul. And it might help me to understand better some of those characteristics of the nature of God in trying to understand this. Now, that being said, uh, the second question is, is there just a body and spirit? And sometimes the Bible does talk about it that way. The Apostle Paul will talk about the outer man who is the outer man who is decaying and the inner man who is constantly being renewed. So there are times where there is a dualism spoken of in the scripture as well. Um, ultimately, though, I tend to go with what it says in First Thessalonians chapter five, that we do see scriptures describing the spirit of a person that is his life force, uh, that which departs from him and renders him dead. The soul, which is uh, that part of a man that is uh, held and preserved, his innermost self, and of course the flesh uh, that sometimes uh, has desires that we have to constantly labor to keep in control. So, Dan, that's how I might look at that from those passages. And I think those are very good observations. 
the context usually will help you differentiate in some way. Uh, not always, but there are some contexts that would help you determine. Uh, like, for example, the word spirit, sometimes that's talking about his attitude or his aura, what he's projecting. Uh, he's got an ill spirit or he's got a he's got a mild spirit about him. Uh, and so sometimes you're talking about the characteristics of the of the heart, uh, the attitudes, the core of his being. And sometimes when you're talking about the soul, you're talking about the eternal aspect of him uh, or the life force that you're talking about. Sometimes even a dog or an animal may have a soul in that sense, but they don't have an eternal um, being that's associated with them there. And so they they would not have an eternal spirit in that sense. So so it just depends on the context. The context may show um, some interchanging between those terms or sometimes the context will reflect that we're talking about a certain aspect as opposed to the other. And the passage in first Thessalonians seemed to make a distinction between soul and spirit. And even Hebrews four, as was mentioned, those are my thoughts. Yeah. There's a number of places where it looks like Chris soul and spirit can be used interchangeably, you know, uh, souls underneath the altar, spirits of just men made perfect. But the Hebrew passage indicates that there is some, and I think the Hebrew passage also admits whatever distinction there is, is a pretty fine one because it also says to judge between the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's a pretty fine line too. So it looks like there's a fine line and maybe, and maybe that would be good reason why, um, I can't really put my finger on what is at the end of the day, the real final distinction, because it looks like scripture admits there's a distinction there that the word of God can discern, but it's a pretty fine distinction. <clears throat> Excellent comments then. Any other thoughts then before we continue with our next question? Okay. Um, I'd like to begin by uh, our next question centers around a couple of Bible passages, and I'm going to read those passages before I put the question up. Uh, they come from Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19. Uh, here's verse 18. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Verse 19 says, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Um, so with that in mind, our question then, uh, which was submitted a little while back, a little lengthy, um, it says this passage is this book or this scroll, the Bible or the book of Revelation. In my view, it must be the book of Revelation, since the Bible was not a book or scroll at that point. It was a collection of letters and books until it was collected into the current anthology. All right, a little lengthy, but I think it's a, a simple question to answer. And uh, how can we uh, how can we do that? Who'd like to start? I, I think it's talking about in that context. He's talking about this book that I'm, I'm presenting to you right now, the book of Revelation. In that, the principle though, is true of every book. 
Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 through 10, Paul said the things, the gospel we preach to you, you, you don't add circumcision to that. And you don't take anything out of what we presented. So the principle would apply to every book, but uh, you're, and so you can't add to any book uh, things that God didn't express and you can't take away from any book what God did express. So, so the principle remains to every book, but yeah, in this context, I'd say it, it, it definitely is talking about the book of revelation, but that doesn't mean well, only the book of revelation has this kind of, uh, guarding to it. No, every book has the same kind of guarding to it. You can see that same warning in the book of Deuteronomy. You can also see it in the book of Proverbs. And like I said, Galatians chapter one, uh, the whole book of Galatians is expounding on not adding to what we preached or perverting what we preached, preaching a different gospel, uh, altering what we preach. So uh, every book has that same same respect uh don't don't tamper with it is the point that's a great point uh you know it's interesting that warnings about adding to scripture show up early in the law they show up almost like right in the middle of your bible you know part it and there you got pretty hard to miss it and of course right before you exit the new testament you got one last warning there i think terry's right that that warning is specifically applies to the book of revelation but as he says that same principle we can find throughout scripture galatians chapter one as terry noted verses six to nine second john nine anyone who goes beyond the teachings of christ does not have god First uh, Timothy chapter six talks about sound doctrine as agreeing with the words of Jesus Christ. One of the things that I note here, Chris, is that um, you're not allowed to come to the Bible and give it any interpretation you want. Uh, the very fact that you can add to it or take away from it means that scripture has boundaries. And when people say, well, you know, the Bible can mean anything and everything. No, uh-uh. And that God takes very seriously how we treat the text. And even Jesus noted that. Uh, not one jot or tittle would pass away from the law until all was fulfilled, Matthew chapter 5. And particularly, I think it's appropriate that you have that warning in the book of Revelation, which has probably been one of the most abused <laughs> books of the Bible as far as people going in and making it and twisting it into what they want it to say. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to be creative like that with your interpretation. Um, you're not allowed to have your own theology and kind of create your own thing. It is a book that what, what God says God mean, means, and we are supposed to faithfully teach it and practice it and not kind of twist it into whatever way we... Um, we want the one other thing I would clarify that here is that yeah when the when the book of Revelation is written clearly we don't have the Bible and like like what we have today is like one book but at the same time there are collections of Paul's letters that Peter talks about in Second Peter chapter three and not only that but the entire Old Testament had been collected and was viewed as a unit before this is said as well. So I just wanted to kind of deal with that final ending of our question is that there was already when the book of Revelation was written, a, an Old Testament body that was recognized as, you know, this is scripture and that's not scripture over there. 
And there was a clear, by the time the book of Revelation is written, there was a clear group of letters that were viewed as Paul's letters, and they were viewed as scripture. Second Peter chapter three, verse 16. Those are my thoughts. Excellent thoughts. Any other thoughts about that? All right, I'll just share one of our uh, viewer comments here. Uh, David Cambridge says, using proper hermeneutics uh, greatly increases the chance of a right interpretation. Of course, that's, uh, uh, that's a, a form of uh, the authority of Scripture, how we look at the Bible. And, uh, uh, of course, you know, typically how we look at authority of Scripture is through what is directly commanded, the, the given obvious. And then, of course, what is implied in Scripture we would call a necessary inference, a necessary conclusion to what the situation uh, shows us. And all of these, I think, in one form or another, shows us the apostolic example. When you see Christians doing things in Scripture and they're not being rebuked or condemned for it, uh, obviously their practices and the things that they do would fall under the category of what we have authority to do, what we believe, the pattern that we must follow. And so when you see the consistency of that from book to book to book, again, as has already been mentioned, you've got Deuteronomy primarily in Revelation that uses that terminology, do not add to or take away. Uh, so, yes, the same respect toward the word of God, toward what has been revealed in Scripture, uh, we should be carrying over even today. So appreciate those thoughts. If you have any other uh, thoughts or, or need more clarification, brother, about this uh, particular question, please reach out and let us know. Let's go to another question uh, about the, uh, let me get back here to my, my listing. We have another one. Our next couple of questions actually deal with the books of the Bible. And again, this is um, more about how we are presented with God's word today, how we do have it in one book that's comprised of of 66 individual books and letters. The question is who put together all 66 books into one book and what principles did they use in doing so? And so we have to go a little bit more into the, the secular, uh, you know, um, you know, history uh, to see kind of where that began. Uh, and I'm sure some of you men have a lot of knowledge in that. I didn't mean to put anybody on the spot, but somebody's going to need to speak up. <laughs> I'm going to say, Brian, you go first and I'll go second. <laughs> Brian just pointed to you. <laughs> so you want me to go first? <laughs> I want to see you, you guys fight it out. Okay. <laughs> okay. How many well, fingers I, am I holding up? <laughs> uh, let me just observe the principles that were used. As you gathered books, you know, like Colossians 4, verse 16, uh, shows that when you read this epistle, uh, uh, share it with the Laodiceans. So what they did is that they they received a letter directly to whatever church, uh, say for example that Paul was writing to, and uh, and when they received that, they knew uh, it had Paul's style, Paul's authority behind it. Somebody delivered it that they trusted, and then they shared it with other churches. But the original check mark is, did this come from the apostle did, or a prophet? Did it come with uh, the authority of an apostle or a prophet? So the first recipients received it uh, as authoritative. It came from one of Jesus' apostles. They are the ones that hand down the judgments of God. So they're judges, they're, they're judging God's people, their, their writings do that. So they're received 
and then they're copied and then they're shared with other churches so that each church is starting to collect these things, passing them around from, from place to place. One from Laodicea gets the one from uh, Colossae and Ephesus and Philippi. They're all just making their copies based upon the first question, who sent it? And uh, by what authority did they send it? So they, they ask those questions as they receive these books. Uh, the second thing is, now we've heard the apostles teaching uh, orally. And so we know what they teach because we've heard them say, does this document agree with what we've already heard? So if it was, uh, if it's saying things that's contrary to what they already knew, Galatians says, you heard from us. And so somebody comes in with the circumcision doctrine, uh, that's a different gospel. So, so you, they knew if it didn't fit what they already had heard orally or in writing from the apostles, they knew it was a document that they should reject or it was a teaching they should reject. So the, so the separating the truth from error thing was going on in the first century as they received these and could pass along that information from church to church. So it was put together in the first century. It, it may not have uh, been collected in one, one volume, but they were collecting these 27 books of what we are now calling the New Testament, uh, those were being collected as they were being written and passed along and verified and checked and tested by the two questions we asked. Did it come from an apostle or prophet? And does it agree with what we already know the apostles have taught? And remember, Paul told the Ephesian elders, I preached the whole council to you. So, so it wasn't like we don't have the whole thing yet. What you have it orally and you know the whole thing. So does this document reflect that whole council that they had already preached? Uh, or does it suggest something very different than what the apostles had already preached? So those were the principles they used in separating true books from God versus the counterfeits that some people tried to pass along. Those are my thoughts. You know, it's a, it's a great question. This is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Where do we get the Bible and why, why are we so certain about it? Um, and it's also an important one because we have a lot of pseudo scholars today that are trying to denounce or take away our confidence in the scriptures. You hear people all the time who try to make it sound like there's all sorts of books that don't get included. Uh, the first thing I always like to remind people is, of course, that the Bible isn't one book, um, which we've kind of already touched on. But let's make it clear. It's not only not one book. It's not even one library. It's two libraries uh, that were brought together in different circumstances. So the Old Testament, uh, its compilation or its, its agreement took place long before the New Testament. Uh, probably everybody here would know that. And a lot of times what we're relying on are men who brought those things together, who themselves probably were inspired. We might think of a scribe like Ezra or others who might bring those things together and were understood and agreed upon. And of course, these are also times where we say if the New Testament writers quote them, we have confidence they're scripture. 
or things of the like. So a lot of times what we're doing to trust the Old Testament is to rely upon the New Testament and to say the New Testament is the weight of that. So Terry uh, kind of articulated well about the New Testament. The term that we use to describe several of the things, and, and Terry kind of talked about them, the idea that they're all testifying to the same things is the word canon. Um, I believe, I recall that the word canon refers to the idea of a string that could be drawn and you could look down it and see that everything was lined up the same way. And so looking down that way of seeing the consistency of theme, um, for example, if somebody grabs a book that's written by Gnostics, like the Gospel of Thomas, you, you read that and you're pretty quick to say, boy, that does not sound anything like Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Uh, and I'm kind of struggling for that. One of the things we're looking for, too, are, is the idea that early writers at the end of the first century, second century, there's a lot of people out there writing, a lot of people that are Christians, or maybe we'd at least say close to being Christian, that they were writing and they were quoting these books, too. And so we have a, a degree of confidence as well when these men are quoting these uh, writings, they're quoting Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, uh, that those quotations strengthen our confidence that uh, they uh, had that uh, testimony of veracity that we're trusting in. Ultimately, our confidence in the Bible is a lot like a, a trial in a courtroom. We're, we're going by witnesses and what they're telling us. We're looking at evidences and what evidences are telling us. And we're drawing a conclusion that we could say is beyond a reasonable doubt that the, the books that we have today that comprise the Bible are the books that came from the Word of God. This is actually a very lengthy answer, and there's a lot more to look at that. And I believe that uh, uh, right above me here, Nick has something to say uh, that might help on the lengthy answer, perhaps, that somebody might be looking for. Yeah, I was just going to recommend to anybody interested out there, there are a couple of scholars that have done a phenomenal job in articulating and expressing textual criticism on a level that is very understandable by, by most people. And of course, F.F. Bruce is going to be one of my go-to uh, authors. He's passed away now from, he's from like the mid-century, I think it was. Uh, but he has done a he has fantastic job. Uh, his biggest book, I think, is called The Canon of Scripture. And man, he just goes through so much history talking about how the canon uh, was was developed and also a huge section in that book about inspiration. Uh, it is a must read for this conversation. Uh, modern day, there is a fellow that I like to uh, read up on and, and uh, listen to his lectures. His name is Daniel Wallace. And I think he's with the Dallas uh, uh, Theological Seminary. Uh, and he his his main focus is is textual criticism. Like, how do we know? And this goes with our next question. How can you know that the uh, books were not altered? Uh, but um, his main focus is textual criticism. And he uh, he has a lecture series that if you can find it, it is worth watching uh, because he will go into the evidence that has come up, he will go into why textual criticism uh, talks about the variations and the variants that exist and how most of those variants are insignificant. Uh, be like, how do you spell color, right? If you're in England, you spell color, C-O-L-O-U-R. But over here in, in America, we drop the U. Well, that's the at the end of the day, is that a significant change, alteration? No, not at all. And so those textual vari uh, variants, that's 99% of them. Uh, and then he'll go into the more difficult ones and explain those too. And, and so those are going to be 
those are going to be my recommendations on trying to wrap your mind around the reliability of the documents, uh, the canon of scripture, textual criticism. And, and so that's, uh, those are must reads. All right. Some excellent points there. And, uh, Nick, you went ahead and kind of, uh, got into the next question. And so if, if there's some more that we can add to that thought, um, how can we prove, uh, well, I'll just read it as it is and y'all can interpret it as you want. How can we prove uh, others original Bible was not altered when they wrote at first? Um, and, uh, uh we, we, we post the questions of the, as they've been given to us. And we know that some of our viewers, uh, are from other countries. And so, um, sometimes, you know, the, the barriers in English and, uh, and, and so on are, are there, but I think we can kind of make out, uh, the thoughts there. And so you want to further uh, the thought a little bit there? Um, anyone, you know, Chris, if they did, they did a horrible job. <laughs> and what I mean by that, Chris, is if you were going to go through and alter scripture, okay, let's, 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 let's assume that uh, sometimes people say, well, the Catholic Church got a hold of the Bible and they altered it. Well, man, the dead, that did they did a poor job because. If I'm in the Catholic Church, I'm getting rid of the fact that Jesus is the sole head of the church. Okay, Ephesians chapter 1, 23. I am also going to get hit, get rid of the qualifications for bishops or overseers in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that they must be married, husband of one wife, and have children that believe. I'm going to get rid of Matthew 23, call no, call no man father. We need to get rid of that. We also need to get rid of 2 Timothy chapter, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4, which says that the apostasy is going to include mandatory celibacy, forbidding to marry, and abstaining from foods. And, and, and it's just like, wow, if they got a hold of it, not only that, but they didn't add anything. <laughs> you know, like they, they didn't build their case. And I guess that that would be just from the eye test, just from an average, ordinary guy like me. Man, if someone got a hold of the Bible, you mean you didn't give us a loophole? I mean, all the sins are condemned in no uncertain terms. And there's a broad way and a narrow way, and there's no wiggle room, and you got to do what God says. And all these sins are condemned condemn you and we're not given any excuse or any justifications and here are the rules and none of that it's like wow um th that's the first thing the other thing i think i go by chris is god's promise that his word would not pass away matthew 24 when jesus said heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away and the thought that his word is viewed as incorruptible seed i guess my third proof chris would be that when jesus shows up he rakes over the scribes and the Pharisees and the pagans for uh, the things that were doing it, that were wrong, but he never rakes the Jews over for corrupting the scriptures. He never rakes them over for not. And that would have been the big issue. That is, if the Old Testament was not accurate when Jesus shows up, that would have been the time to correct it. And then I guess maybe the last thing would be is that things like we have like the Dead Sea Scrolls and ancient manuscripts I think pretty much confirmed that we have the same text that they did. But I, I still think that first point always strikes me of, well, if man got a hold of the Bible, wow, did he really blow it? Because there's no loopholes in it that I can find. I mean, it reads, it still reads 
as authoritative and this is right, that's wrong, black and white. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, you know, so I know um, Brian here in a minute is going to talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls to just uh, just put an exclamation point on what I'm about to say. Uh, the the New Testament and the Old Testament, they are very accurate. Now, are there people who are going to make changes and corrupt it? Why, sure. I mean, look at the New World Translation of the Holy Scriptures by the Jehovah's Witnesses as evidence that people attempt it and, and they try their best at it. And and it, they do uh, they do have their little corners of the world where they're able to get a little foothold. But anybody with any sense can say, you know what, that New World Translation does not read like the Bible does. And they can they can pinpoint it uh, and they can see something is wrong with that translation pretty fast. And so back through through history, and this is what Dan Wallace will go into if you ever follow his uh, textual criticism lectures, uh, you will see uh, that there is these little little areas where a, a, a certain variation will rise up and it stays very uh, localized. And so where, whereas you have all these other manuscripts across the Roman Empire, uh, those little pockets of randomness, they get flagged pretty fast and they don't they don't stand the test of time. And, and so, you know, there is that uh, that that confidence there that God's word is being preserved. And and so if we even back up just a little bit, you have, you know, Two main thoughts in regards to the textual, uh, the textual uh, variance. Uh, you have the the older is is the best, and you have the majority is best. And and so, modern English translations that might represent the uh, the majority is best would be the King James version and the New King James. And then the oldest is best. You would have like the ESV and New American Standard uh, as as great examples of those. And so when you read those uh, those two conflicting philosophies, they all teach the same thing. There's nothing lost. Uh, even though there may be some, some minor variations in between those two, uh, I can read the exact same truths, have the exact same doctrines, establish any uh, Bible translation that I read from, unless you have some like crazy corruption, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, but that's a, an extreme outlier. You know, those comments that uh, uh, Nick made are just fantastic. And uh, I just want to say that it is interesting that we have a couple of uh, historical discoveries that really tighten things down. Um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls have been mentioned several times. And the significance of the Dead Sea Scrolls is here are documents of the Old Testament written before the time of Christ um, that were found almost like a time capsule in the 1940s. And uh, that those uh, that times capsule then delivers us the Old Testament. And we can look at that and we can look at the Old Testament that had been copied and copied and copied. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, after that, uh, the oldest uh, Old Testaments we have is the Aleppo manuscript from about the 10th century. So, you know, that's nearly a thousand years different. And yet we can look and say, hey, wait a second, they're, they're the same. You know, there isn't a textual variation. Um, this is one of the big lies that everybody gets is that, well, the Bible's been translated dozens of times and copied hundreds of times. But, you know, the Bible, if you're an English speaker and the Bible you hold in your hands, that that Bible has only been translated one time from the original language. A translation means one language to another uh, uh, translated from the original language uh, to your language. And it's not just true of of uh, English. That's also true of uh, Spanish and 
Uh, I believe it's true of uh, many of the other ancient uh, modern languages as well. It's just been translated once. Has it been copied hundreds of times? So I mentioned that the Old Testament might have done that, except now we have the Dead Sea Scrolls. But you know, we have New Testament manuscripts that go back to the, the second and third century, probably only copied, you know, five, six, seven, eight times at the most from the original manuscript, the original uh, autograph, so to speak. So the point is, somebody tells you, oh, you can't trust the Bible. It's been copied. It's been translated. Uh, they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, they're just throwing out something they've heard, and they're just trying to make it sound like there's something dubious about it. But boy, we have a tremendous confidence that what we're looking at here is original. But let me let me add one other thought. I might be you know taking something away from Terry here, but you know the concept of a divine God, you know a God who has the power to one day save you know deliver me from death. If I don't believe that God has the power to make sure His word, His idea passes through time and it doesn't get significantly changed so that we don't know what He's talking about. If God can't do that, God's not going to be able to save me or resurrect me or anything. He's He lacks the power to do so. If God doesn't have the power to deliver me or to deliver his word to me, he doesn't have power. He's not God. There is no God. So the problem that we have there is to say that uh, if I don't believe that the this message I have in my hands is the message God wants me to have, if I don't believe that to be true, I really don't believe in God. And that's a far greater loss to me even than doubting the scriptures. I would add this. If you had the uh, constitution, the original document that the uh, founding fathers of this country, if you, if you got rid of that and somehow it went missing for good, would we be able to restore reasonably the constitution of the United States? Would we have a reasonable basis or would we start saying, well, we don't have the original uh, autograph copy. Therefore, we can't trust what we have. I don't think we'd play that game uh, because we would know that there's enough copies and enough quotations of it to know that we've got an accurate copy. Uh, one thing that has come up in recent years uh, is the claim that Jesus never claimed to be divine and the original apostles never claimed that Jesus was divine that that came up uh, later on. And uh, so the originals probably didn't say that Jesus was divine. Well, you don't know that, but I do know this, that the prophetic word said that the Messiah was going to be divine. So it's not a new concept that developed in the third and fourth and fifth centuries. This was something even before Jesus got here that he would be God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. Isaiah 9, 6, a child will be called mighty God. A child would become prince of peace. All of the things that the copies we have of the New Testament, all of the copies say the same thing that the prophetic word said. He would be uh, Micah 5, 2. He, his goings forth are from everlasting to everlasting. The, the, the copies we have didn't invent that concept. It was already there. So, no, I, I can't believe that the first century documents, the original manuscripts that the apostles wrote, said something far different than the third century and fourth century uh, documents. 
Now, if they could get it, all of that change done before the third and fourth centuries and get all of that change implemented into all the, all the copies, then you could do that again. In other words, if you can't trust that the documents you have were reliable reflections of the first documents, then you can't trust that the documents of the 14th century accurately reflect those of the 6th and 7th centuries. If people could manage to put in a lot of debris and a lot of alteration between centuries, then they can still do it. And it'd be like trying to change the Constitution and say the original didn't say that, or it was probably altered. You can't play that game because the gas, the copies you do have do not show continual alterations through the centuries. And you'd have to have that if you're going to make the claim that it did happen in the first and second centuries. And so the argument is invalidated. Those are my thoughts. You know, Chris, it's interesting here that as long as people focus on as long as people try to question the validity of the text, that's kind of an easy out because you don't have to deal with the text. <laughs> and just, just remember when people are doing that is that they're playing a game there of, why don't you actually deal with the text itself? Why don't you deal with the arguments that Jesus made? Why don't you deal with his miracles or the character of Christ? But to just kind of say, ah, you can't trust that is kind of a smokescreen which means that you're not willing to, if it's not true, you should be able to find a lot of stuff there that you can factually argue against. And as long as people try to just throw suspicion on the text in general, um, to me, they're just giving you a smoke screen. They're not really willing to deal with the faith and the text and the truth itself. Uh, it's interesting also, Chris, that when you deal sometimes with some people that are trying to tell you something wrong, now and then they'll say, whoa, the original Greek, Greek or Hebrew says, and you go like, well, wait a minute, weren't you just a guy that told me that we cannot rely upon this document and you're citing the original Greek and Hebrew? Sounds like you're willing to, you're, you're trying to play both ends of the stick. Those are my thoughts, Chris. Great being on the show today. Great answers, guys. Uh, certainly was very educational day and I'm just going to throw in one more of the comments that was received and uh, I, I think this is a, a, a wide open comment because I think it can apply to so many various translations there are so many available today and a more recent one is the new American Standard 2020 version is, is in this context is the NA, NASB 2020 worth looking at and um, I, I don't know enough about it uh, some of the newer versions I just kind of tend to automatically, you know, stay away from, uh, you know, I, I will give it its due diligence and uh, we certainly have to research that a little bit more. Uh, Brian, your understanding of it is uh, kind of. Yeah, I know. I know they kind of, uh, you know, Gregor and I have actually talked about this in other circumstances um, and um, they have kind of softened <laughs> some of the language of the 1995 NAS um, and I don't know necessarily, you know, how problematic that could be. I mean, it always sounds bad, but it doesn't necessarily 
reflect badly. But right. frankly, I think all of us uh, kind of in our behind the scenes chat are saying, I don't know enough to really make a good comment about this. Sure. So uh, that's well, where and, we're you at. Well, I don't mean to be an old curmudgeon about some of this, but, uh, you know, we have so many great translations that are out there. Yes, we could pick apart you know, faults and failures within certain contexts, contextual things. But we, through faith, believe that God has preserved for us his word. And uh, there are some stinkers out there. So you do have to be careful uh, before you dive deep into some things. And I could give you a whole list and that might make for an interesting study sometime. But uh, it's also opinionated in regard to some people's views. I do appreciate David's comment and the fact that he said avoid paraphrase Bibles. Absolutely. Uh, if you want to use them as kind of a reference or, uh, you know, commentary, you have to remember that commentaries are written by men and a lot of Bibles that may have um, some of the older texts in them. Sometimes you'll see a whole section in the bottom, you know, of commentary. Again, you have to be very careful as to what they're teaching. Let the Bible speak for itself. Uh, do some research. Use various Bibles and cross-reference various scriptures. You're going to see different words, different terminologies, different arrangement of phrases, you know, because uh, if it were just written like the Greek, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to understand it. Um, and uh, one of my questions I'll pose to you guys after the, the program here is, uh, I'm curious, I've heard it said that some of the Spanish translations are probably some of the more accurate toward the original wording of Greek as well as Hebrew, but I'm going to I'm going to pose that out there for another time. So anyway, there's a whole lot out there. Anything new that comes along, my question would be why, you know, why is it necessary? Are you trying to say you can do it better than those in the past? Are you trying to push an agenda or something like that? I've stood up in classes before and taught where something said something about a Roman or a Jew and I had a brother once look up at me and he says, "Well, my Bible don't say that." And I said, "What are you reading?" you know, and it was a translation problem. So um, anyway, we could talk about this all day, but we are out of time. It's been great being with you guys today and looking forward to our next study and um, looking forward to seeing you, some of us, some of you next Tuesday, as well as our Q&A next Wednesday. So have a great week and may God be with you in your, your work for the Lord this week. We want to, of course, remind you of our various studies throughout the week. And as always, the live Bible Q&A is every Wednesday at noon Eastern Standard Time, which, you know, we've had uh, good viewer numbers today. And we really appreciate you joining in, uh, listening in and adding to our our question and answers. If you have questions, remember to send those to questions at answeringreligiousera.com. And that's the best way to reach us. You can send those at any time throughout the week and we'll add those to the lineup. Uh, for next time. And then you can also be with us on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time as we discuss the series, Why I Believe. We have a few more lessons to cover in that. And it's been very encouraging, I know for me and for the others that are studying this issue. And uh, if you have any questions in regard to that, please pass those along at our email address as well. You can, of course, listen to the Daily Answer podcast every Monday through Friday, beginning as early as 5 a.m. Eastern time. And that's with our own Mark Dunnigan as he shares with you his wisdom about life and godliness. Join Bob Myhan every Monday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Time. He uh, is going through a series of lessons. Uh, you know, as he puts it, it's, you know, basic uh, Bible teaching so that we can understand. And he's talking about angels and demons. And I think you'll enjoy. Uh, he's already got several out there, five or six. And uh, if the Lord wills, he'll pick up with that next, mon uh, next Monday as well. 
And we want to remind you of a program for women by women every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. That's older women likewise. And uh, they'll share with you their knowledge and understanding of God's word. I want to go ahead and plug this for Brian. I had it up on the screen just a little bit earlier. I've been enjoying a program that he's on. seems like every time I bring up the Internet, Brian Haynes is there imparting the wisdom of God. But he's with a group of men every Thursday morning uh, at 12 Eastern time. That's morning for him. But if you uh, can go to Facebook or YouTube, I like to watch the YouTube version. Just type in Truth Factor Live and you'll find Brian Haynes there with some other brethren that are teaching God's word. They're going through Galatians at this moment. And so spend your Thursday morning uh, listening to those fine gentlemen as well. Again, we want to thank you for being uh, with us on the program today. Uh, Reach out to us, ask us questions, or make comments. And we look forward to seeing you next time on Answering Religious Error.